Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. More exciting news, I've recently launched Zibby's Picks book subscription service. Four times a year, so every three months, I'll send you a new fantastic book that I think you will love. So just go to zibbyowens.com, and it's actually zibbyowens.com slash swag, and sign up for a book subscription in either fiction, memoir, nonfiction slash parenting, children's book, middle grade fiction, and I'll send you just fantastic books, and it will be great. And I also have gift options available if you want to give this to another book lover in your life. So please check it out. Tell friends and start subscribing. Thanks so much to my sponsor, Libro FM. Libro FM Audiobooks lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 125,000 audiobooks, including many New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you get the same audiobooks at the same price as other audiobook companies, but you're going to be part of a much different story, one that supports the community. You can even choose which local bookstore you'd like to support, which is so cool. Listeners of my podcast can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Just go to Libro.fm, ro.fm and enter code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y. With every time you listen to an audiobook, now you can be proud that you're supporting a local bookstore. And the best part is that I have my own playlist on Libro FM, which is so cool. So the books that have been on my podcast and that I'm recommending are now in my own playlist. If you go to Libro FM slash playlists, you can find it, which is so great. I am really excited to be here with Alyssa Altman today, who's the author of Motherland, a memoir of love, loathing, and longing. Alyssa is also the author of the critically acclaimed book, Trafe, My Life as an Unorthodox Outlaw, and Poor Man's Feast, A Love Story of Comfort, Desire, and the Art of Simple Cooking. She wrote the James Beard award-winning blog by the same name. Alyssa's work has been published in Oh! The Oprah Magazine, The New York Times, Sever, and The Washington Post, where she wrote a year-long column entitled Feeding My Mother. Her work has been included in Best Food Writing for the past six years, and she was a novelist for the Frank McCourt Memoir Prize. She currently lives with her wife in Connecticut. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is great. Uh So can you please tell listeners what Motherland is about and what inspired you to write it? Oh, my goodness. Well, as I actually recently described um, Motherland as uh, to someone as a story of um, what would happen if Anna Wintour gave birth to the Susie character from Mrs. Maisel. <laughs> and the, and the, um, the latter had to come back and be the caregiver for Anna. And please forgive me, Anna. I, I, I doubt that, you know, you will hear me saying these words, but I, who knows? I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, it's a motherland is really a memoir of um, moral obligation and certainly a memoir of love. And it's a story about, you know, what, what happens when we are called to make a decision about coming back to the fray, um, coming back into a relationship from which we have painstakingly extricated ourselves after a very long, arduous and difficult relationship. Do we do it? Do we not do it? Some years ago, uh, there was a book uh, written by a, a wonderful journalist named Jane Gross, who wrote a, uh, a long blog for the New York Times called The New Old Age. And, um, and, and then she wrote a book that came out of that. And one of the questions was, you know, what happens when a senior um, 
and needs their family and needs their children. And they have a terrible relationship with those children. Um, and she actually tells a story about, you know, the fact that some people would drop their senior parent off at their assisted living or their rehab or whatever, pay the bill and never be, you know, never to be seen or heard from again. Could I do anything like that? No, I couldn't. My mother and I, uh, as you know, as you know, through the book, have this um, crazy addicted relationship, codependent to an extreme. And and so the, the, the story was really born out of this experience. I live uh, two and a half hours away from my mother. It took me years to get here, years to get away. And in 2016, she suffered a significant injury and I had to make the decision or the decision made itself. How was I going to care for her and survive? I mean, it's like, I, you know, I call it like modern family meets postcards from the edge. It just is, it's who we are. And I do believe that we have a moral obligation to care for the seniors in our midst, whether or not they make us want to put our heads in the oven. <laughs> <laughs> And and why now? What made you, after she had her injury, what made you say, okay, I have to write a book about this? Well, I had actually uh, started writing the book before the injury happened. I had a year-long column uh, in the Washington Post called Feeding My Mother. And I have a, a long history as a food writer, but Feeding My Mother was really about nurturing and sustaining someone who will not be nurtured and not be sustained. You know, my mom is a former model. She was modeling as recently as 15 years ago. She's really, she is a force of nature. She hates food, like loads it. She just will, she is, she will not be, um, not be nurtured that way. And of course the universe works in, you know, mysterious ways. And she wound up with a food writer as a daughter because <laughs> that's what happens. So, so I wrote this year long column about tending to her nurturing and sustenance needs as she was getting older. And I had done a TEDx talk um, that was connected to the same to the same column. And so that was really the launch pad for the uh, the idea of the book. You know, how do these two incredibly different, you know, mother and daughter, how do we navigate, how do I navigate uh, this world when our roles have reversed? You know, I'm now charged with caring for her. Um, how do we, you know, how do we do that? And so I started writing, I was writing essays, I was writing a lot of pieces about it. My second book had come out, I went off on book tour, I came home, it was a Saturday night, I sat down, I put my bags down, I might have had a glass of wine, and I thought, okay, I'm just going to give myself this day and I'm going to, you know, and then I'm going to start working on Motherland. And the phone rang. And at the other end was my mother saying, I fell. The two words that we will, all of us will hear it at some point. I fell. She was two and a half hours away. I had to get into the car with my partner, drive down. And that began the unraveling of this, um, of what ultimately became this memoir. Wow. Yeah. I also yeah. think as much as your book is about taking care of an elderly parent, it's also, I felt, a real coming of age for you. Even yes. though it's later in life, it's still like a, how do you create your own boundaries and how do you 
sort of separate from the close relationships you have from your childhood and sort of become an adult, which I think is relevant at any age. Like somebody 21 could be reading this book and completely identify and somebody, you know, 80, you know, who's dealing with their 100-year-old parents. So I think there's also that tension. Say that, the 80 who's dealing with a 100-year-old parent, you know, but that's the way it is, right? I mean- People live so much longer, and my grandmother's 95 years old. You know, my Uh, mom is 70, and she's still, you know, I mean, anyway, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) um, But you write so beautifully. I was hoping to just read a passage, if you don't mind, um, from the beginning of the book, uh, which was just so beautiful. You had just come in from a run. You say, on this day, the sun isn't all the way up, and the interior of the house is a murky gray. I have just come in from a run. I was never a runner, but I began recently because it creates a kind of porosity. It allows air and light to filter through me and loosens the knot that snares me every morning before eight when I answer the phone in that slim moment between the ring and my mother's voice, a rest, a beat, a break in the symbiosis that has defined us and the universe in which we've lived. I stand in the kitchen and stare at the phone. I inhale, it rings, the dog barks, I exhale. I choose my response, the seconds between stimulus and reaction, Viktor Frankl called it, in which lies my freedom. Ah, that is so good. Thank you. (laughs) You tell us so much in that passage. It's like your mother's calling you every day. You pick up anyway. Like, why do you, you know, and you're, you dread it, but you do it. Right. So I know a therapist and your partner at one point said, what about not picking up the phone every time? What about, talk to me about, about that and how this sort of intrusiveness in your daily life came about and how you learned to cope with it. Uh, My fear. um, And I think it's the fear of any um, adult child of a senior person. Always when the phone rings, it's like, oh, my God, did they fall? Did they, is this happening? Is it, it's, it's crisis management. And I'm sure, I don't have children, but I'm sure it's the same with children. You know, um, you never know what's going to happen. You never know when the phone rings. And, and that's, been, that's the switch in me, in my brain that flips every time the phone rings. And it's definitely Pavlovian. There's no question about it. And she knows that, you know. But my mother's need to reach me and my need to be reached by my mother, it's very, very old. And, and you know, I, I recently wrote about the fact that when I was in college in Boston, um, these are the days long, you know, long before cell phones, when everybody had a wall phone and in and um and she figured out that my number was ended in uh something like 8854 and then she she tried she, she called me she couldn't reach me she tried my next door neighbor's number 8855 couldn't reach them called the next door 8856 and I literally instead of just unplugging my phone I took the entire phone off the wall and she made it around the entire dormitory floor uh, until she finally reached somebody who would then go knock on my door. And I was, you know, I was studying, I was hanging out with my boyfriend at the time, you know, any number of possibilities. So I, you know, was raised to believe that when your mother calls you, even if it's 14 times a day, you answer the phone. And that is, it's so, it's, it's such addictive behavior. It's so, you know, I'm sure that there's a dopamine uh, component to it um, in the same way that, you know, your phone buzzes and you, you're, you're automatically compelled to look to see, you know, oh, did my Instagram feed get blah, blah, blah. Did you, you know, was somebody trying to reach me? 
was the same thing with with my mom and I and I was trained very very early on that way she had that same relationship with her mother her mother was gifted keys to our house when I was a child and Saturday morning you know, my poor dad, long-suffering father, you know, my, my the door would open and she would show up and there was there were no boundaries at all. And so it has taken me a very long time. I mean, I'm in my early 50s. It's taken me a very long time to understand that every single time the phone rings, I don't have to answer it. If there is a problem, if there has been a fall, if there's been, you know, I will know. I will definitely know about it. I call her in the morning. I call her in the evening. And getting to that point has been um, a real struggle. And I actually went through something that can only be described as the DTs. I mean, I went through like a detox, not hearing her voice, not answering the phone, making the decision to let it ring and step outside, take the dog out, go for a run, take the phone off the hook, any of those. Because if I say to her, you know, you think about older people, a lot of older people are like children. If I say to her, this is what, I, here are the boundaries. I'm going to answer the phone between this time and this time. It yeah. means nothing. It, mean, it means nothing. When we stop doing this conversation interview, I'm going to go online and send you an old-fashioned answering machine that you can hear when she talks. <laughs> <laughs> and then you will know. And if she says, I've fallen and I, it's an emergency, you can walk over and pick up the phone. And, and the funny thing is, is that, you know, we all have these sort of digital answering services. Now, those of us of dinosaurs like myself who still have landlines, and she just, she thinks that I can hear her and that I'm choosing to not. And of course I am choosing not to answer. Right, right. But um, I think it would give you some peace of mind. I'm just saying it's a cheap fix as opposed to the therapy that you may... <laughs> <laughs> when I look into, I'm just kidding. It is, you know, it, it, it is a question though, because, and it's a very fine line. I mean, as people get older, you have to be aware of the fact that there will be a fall right? and there will, this will happen and she'll forget the pot on the stove and, and, and it might be the neighbor and, you know, so that's, that's been challenging, but. Um, and I was uh, sort of wondering, as you told this whole story and her need to call you so often, if she was aware of mm-hmm. that she was doing it so much. And then when it got to the point when your father passes away, which was so sad and she says to you, okay, I've given you a month off, but now it's all about me again. Right. I, I like could not believe she said that. She actually, she actually said, she gave me, as I think I describe it in the book as being a wide berth mm-hmm. for the month after he passed, he had, he died as a result of a car accident. And so beyond the grief, um, sort of, you know, encasing the grief were issues of practicality. There, there were, um, you know, the insurance issues and the car and the other people who were involved in the accident and my stepmother. And, and it was a very, very, um, hard and very, it was gnarly, you know, and I don't have any siblings. And so it was just, you know, me having to unravel this. 
And my mother stepped back and it was like the first time in our lives that she gave me that period of time. And I think that part of it was the fact that my mother does not do grief well. Grief is uh, grief is something that is not uh, controllable. It's you can't plan for it. You don't know when it's going to hit or how it's going to hit. It creeps up on you. It sometimes is something that just you just never get over. It just changes. I think, you know, I, I had a a conversation um, at an event with Claire Bidwell Smith, and I and we were taught we talked about that. She was that on my she was on my podcast. She's an absolutely amazing woman, amazing writer, and it just changes. And so my mom gave me that month for whatever reason, um, and part of it I think is because she couldn't do, deal with the grief. And then it was like the day thirty or day 31 and the phone rang and she said, it's been a month and it is now time for you to focus on me. And those words will stay in my brain in my little, you know, in the crevasses of my brain for for the rest of my life. And that was really the moment when I realized that this is not a normal situation. And she is in fact suffering from NPD. And people who suffer from NPD, which is narcissistic personality disorder, it's not something that can be cured. They need what they need when they need it. And they will go to any length to feed that narciss- those narcissistic coffers. And when she said that, it was like that moment in time where I realized what I had been facing all along and what I was going to be facing for the rest of my life and the rest of her life. People who, senior citizens often need a lot more um, emotionally. Um, they become like babies. They regress. Um, that's something that just happens. This is that and more, and a, diff- a different version of that. And so it was a shocking revelation. You know, when the world around you says, of course, we all knew this. Why didn't you know this? And I didn't know it because I was in it. I was living in the center of it. I was at the eye of the storm that is my mom um, and the storm that was our relationship, that is our relationship. And so when that happened, as awful as it was for her to say that and for me to hear it, it put so much into perspective for me. And of course, my partner was sitting there and she said, of course, this is, she's verbalizing what we all have known to be the case with her and and her truth. And the problem, because I've read um, a lot about narcissistic personality disorder, is that the person who has it often doesn't acknowledge that they have it. So they don't respond well to treatment. So the only thing you can do is deal with it yourself, basically. Right. Um, Right. And also I've read that um, oftentimes, and it sounds like obviously this did not happen with you, but that children of parents with narcissistic personality disorder often marry people who also have it. (laughs) Well, I'm happy to say that I went so far in the other direction. (laughs) I married, you know, a wonderful woman who is like a quiet Connecticut Yankee, just very much an observer and um, a brilliant book designer. And and again, very sort of quiet, observant person and probably an empath to an extreme, um, which is the you know, the other side of the spectrum. So, So a a lot of the book was spent describing your mother's appearance and her focus on it herself, right? Her 
former glory and her makeup and just how she had to look perfect all the time and your response to that. So I had one question is like, after I read the book, I meant to go online and sort of Google your mom because I was dying to see a, a picture of her. And I was like, that's creepy. I'm not going to do that. But the way you wrote it made me like so curious because you make her sound like, you know, this. I mean, was she really that amazingly gorgeous? I mean, you sa- yeah. she sounds like, yeah, she really was. All right, well. And she still is. Yeah. And she still and she, is. Oh my gosh. Yes. I'll uh, send you a picture. <laughs> okay, please do. So, makeup in general, let me just talk about that for two seconds. At the end of the book, you have her in the scene surrounded by bags and bags of makeup. And you have a scene, another scene where you go into her medicine cabinet and see rows of this Clinique red, red, red that she wears all the time. Yeah. And I feel like makeup has so many meanings because I feel like you are trying to make up with your mom throughout this book. And here she is putting on more and more makeup. And I don't know. I just felt like that was a, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that there was yeah. something to it. Right. I mean, right, right. She, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I, I also, you know, describe early on in the book her longing to uh, put me into a makeover situation, you yep, know, yep. when I was 11, you know, and uh, the definition of a makeover is, is to undo that which that which exists. That's, I think, the actual dictionary definition of it. I don't know that so much that I wanted to make up with her. I wanted to have a sane life with her. We have struggled together. And it has been a parallel struggle because as frustrating as it has been for me to have a mother with whom I share zero in common, except for a sliver of DNA, (laughs) maybe just a tiny little bit, a thin strand of DNA. I look like my dad. I talk like my dad. I'm built like my dad. I respond to the world around me like my dad. I sound like him. He was a great writer. Um, And so I attribute a lot of what I do and who I am to, to my father. I think I was a source of great frustration for my mother that she couldn't understand why I was not this person who looked just like her and acted just like her. And, you know, we, we're as different as different as night and day. And so it's been frustrating for her. It's also been very frustrating for me. Why can't you understand who, you know, who I, who I am? So makeup, perhaps that might be uh, a way we might have made up would have been to come to terms with the fact that we're very, very different. We love each other anyway. And, and we're, we're almost there. We're at that, you know, we're at that point. I don't really get sucked into the engagement of, you know, the, the whole animosity thing anymore. She, again, that's another dopamine rush for her. She loves the fight. She loves the argument. And it's just not who I am. Um, I was for a long time when I lived there and it was very difficult, but so I think where makeup is concerned, that's the, you know, another central, absolutely a central meaning of, of makeup in our lives. For my mom, you know, makeup was that which she was able to hide behind. She grew up believing and being told by her mother and her father that she was very unattractive as a child. And that this, and she grew up, you know, in, in the late thirties, early forties at a time of, you know, the bombshells and the movies and the war and the pinup girls and so on and so forth. And so every time she looked in the mirror as a child, she felt that there was this terribly unattractive person staring back at her. 
And she started to, she, she claims that she was heavy as a child. I've seen pictures of her and, you know, she was a little chubby little girl, but not in any way that you would be like, oh my God, this child's going to be ill. And, you know, and she was not any, any way like that, but she uh, was a, a tremendous fan of the movies as a child. Her parents would drop her off at the movies and pay them like, you know, 75 cents just to let her sit there all day. And, and again, she was also an only child. And so she wanted to be like the, these people she saw in the movies. And so she was a singer as a, as a very young child on radio. And then with the advent of television in the late 1940s, she was like, that's what I, you know, she thought that's what I want to do. And she went to, uh, what was the school, uh, perform, high school of performing arts in New York and basically starved herself, lived on cigarettes and black coffee as a 16 year old, sold her lunch sandwiches and, and tells this to me, you know, all the time. And she changed her body like met from a metabolic standpoint and she's very long and thin and lithe and she's always been that way like 117 pounds my left leg weighs 117 pounds (laughs) (laughs) and she just she fell in love with makeup she just fell in love with it and it became the thing that saved her and so she put it on and looks in the mirror and she's the person she wa- always wanted to be. And so she, you know, she hoards it. I think she has always hoarded it. So there was that scene in the book where, you know, where we go back to her apartment and we find 31 tubes of Clinique red, red, red lipstick. I mean, it was my mother kept clean, you know, keeps Clinique in business. <laughs> and I used to get really crazy and upset about that. And then I realized it's her nurturing. It's her sustenance. It's the thing that she needs to excess. There's definitely an addiction component there, but I'm not at the point where I can say, okay, mom, enough. You know. How does your mom feel about this book? My mother believes that all publicity is good publicity. <laughs> As a, my mother is, a, is, um, is also a longtime singer and she was on television. She still sings from time to time publicly. She read all of the Washington Post articles, uh, grumbled about them a little bit. I think grumbled when uh, the Post revealed her age. That was the thing she complained about. She knows that we have had a very difficult time of it. And I have said to her, you know, I'm hoping that this book is going to provide hope for other mothers and daughters who live at polar opposites and don't know that there is a way to find peace together. Because, you know, I I don't want to give away the end of the story, but we did find a way to really understand and love each other. That is possible. And she knows that's there. And I think as long as she knows that's there, it's okay. She's got the galley. She hasn't read it yet. Oh my goodness. <laughs> she like walks into Shakespeare and Company on the Upper West Side and waves it around. That's who she is. <laughs> oh my gosh. She says the cover and says, this is me, you know, this one's me and this one's her. So yeah. That's just crazy. That's, I mean, it's perfect. It's just so perfect. <laughs> is. is there anything you would tell, like, let's say you were starting life from the beginning again, let's say from when you're 16 years old or somebody, you know, somebody else's 16 year has a child or is going through something similar with a similar type of mother or at older age, from all of your experience with your mother, do you have advice for that person? Step away and learn who you are as an independent person. And with that independence, you will be able to step back into your, into your relationship with her and find love where you might 
not think that it exists. That break that I had, you know, the physical break, the move away from New York, my mother doesn't drive. So it's not like she can just get into the car and drive up to, you know, Connecticut where I live. That move away from her was an emotional break from her. It was a physical break. It was a psychological break from her. Had that not happened, I probably would not be having this conversation. (laughs) It was very, very important. It was the hardest thing that I could do. I didn't have to go to California to do it. I didn't have to go to Japan to do it. I moved a couple of hours away. I created, I had the possibility, I found the possibility of my own life and finding love and meaning in my own life. And once I was able to do that and to honor my own needs, I was able to step back and be her caregiver with boundaries. It's something that I never thought was going to happen. When I was living in New York City in the 90s, it was like, oh, my God, this is I used to come home from work and find her sitting in my lobby. She would show up at my office and, you know, my boss would come downstairs and say, she's here again. And she just thought that that was okay. You know, Um, had I not made the, the move away I don't think that I would have ever been able to make the boundary. I I never would have been able to see her as a separate person and see myself as a separate person and honor her as a separate person. She's an incredibly extraordinary and interesting person. I was far too close to her to really see that until I left. And you're such a talented writer. I mean, I truly, I'm not just saying this. I loved the book and some sentences I just like had to pause to reread. And I I love when books make that happen to me. Do you have any advice to other authors out there? I know you've done tons of essay writing and memoir and food writing. Any advice? I think primarily in the the world that we live in now, it's such a distracting world. I think a lot of writers say this and offer this as as advice. It's really, really important to uh, disconnect from uh, the digital digital universe. By and by that I mean social media. A lot of our a lot of us use our cell phones as our primary phones, myself included. Shut it off, put it in another room. The need to pick it up and look at it absolutely pulls you away from the time and the focus that you need to create something that is longer than a sentence long. So that's that's one thing. I think in social media, um, you know, Danny Shapiro once wrote a few years ago, it was quite a while ago, and it was a prophecy, I think, um, that uh, it was a piece that I think ran in the New Yorker.com. It was a status update is not an essay. A status up- update is not a memoir. Use your social media, that's fine, but give yourself the time away from it to create the longer form work. So that's my first suggestion. My second of always is read, read everything you can read out of the genre that, uh, that you work in or that you want to work in. Think about sound when you write, think about um, economy of language, all of those things. A lot of us don't think about sound when we write, Read out loud to yourself, read your work out loud to yourself and just listen. And, you know, the, the oral, you know, A-U-R-A-L quality of, of words is as important, I think, as what we read on, on paper. Um, and it's something that very few people, I think, really think about. So that's really important. Everything I ever write, I read out loud to my husband. <laughs> <laughs> Good. 
good. Yeah. Good. Not like I have a book like yours. <laughs> anyway. Well, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I feel like I could talk to you about this all day, but. <laughs> and, um, and we probably will. At yeah, some- that'd be nice. <laughs> good. All right. Well, thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to my sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Zibby Owens and my new podcast at Kids Do Have Time to Read. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at Zibby at ZibbyOwens.com. 